morning again, everyone. Glad that you are here this morning. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 3 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and steward is up with Bibles in his hand and would love to bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. Is that you, Joy? Hi, Joy. Where's Ed? Is he back in Idaho? Oh, okay. Well, nice to see you. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute. We said goodbye to you a couple, about <laughs> a month ago. Awesome. Glad to have you back for this morning. Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses this morning. Starting in verse 1, Matthew writes for us, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water into repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. The title of my study this morning is The Greatest. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, this opportunity to open up your word, knowing, Lord, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. So we pray. Lord, as Abby has prayed, Lord, that we would have open ears to receive all that you have for us today, that we would hear from you this morning. We also pray, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again, they've not repented of their sins, Lord, would you especially touch their heart this morning, that they would sense your love and grace poured out to them in their lives. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We ask your continued continued blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love this story. I shared it before many times about the boy playing baseball all alone by himself and, and it was heard to say, I am the greatest hitter in the world. And he tosses the ball up in the air and he swings and he misses it. Strike one. Undaunted, he, he picked up the ball again, threw it in the air and, and said to himself, I am the greatest baseball hitter ever. He swung at it, missed. Strike two. He paused for a moment, examined his bat, examined the ball carefully. Then a third time he threw the ball into the air and said, I'm the greatest hitter that ever lived, he said, as he swung the bat hard this time. Missed a third time. He then cried out, wow, strike three. What a pitcher. I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. Muhammad Ali said he was the greatest. 
There's a recent movie called The Greatest Showman. You hear discussions all the time about, well, who was the greatest, you know, baseball player of all time? Who was the, the greatest quarterback? Tony the Tiger thinks his Frosted Flakes are, are great. Our president wants to make America great again. But what truly makes a per- person great? Maybe, you know, you're, you're born into a famous family, you know, and, and you have this certain measure of greatness. Or, or maybe, you know, to be great, you would say, well, you have to have lots of money. Or, or if you have a lot of money, the world tends to look at you as being great. Or maybe it's education. You know, you get, you know, a lot of degrees. And or maybe it's just general success. If you're su- successful, people look at you and say, man, uh, what, what a great, great person. Well, we know that Jesus was the greatest man that ever walked this earth, yet he wasn't born into the right family. In fact, he was born into a poor family. His stepdad was a, a carpenter. They didn't have a lot of money. Jesus certainly didn't have any degrees or formal education. And by way of success, uh, in the world's eyes, I mean, you would say dying on the cross as a criminal is not very successful. But that just tells us that God looks at greatness differently than we do. Now, when we think about a guy like John the Baptist, there's probably a lot of words that come to your mind. Unconventional might be, be one word to describe him. Odd, perhaps. Hippie-like might be another word. He's out there in the desert eating bugs. But I tell you, the best way to describe John the Baptist is great. He was a great man. In fact, Jesus said so in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 28. He says, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Why was John the greatest? Because John and John alone was the direct herald and forerunner of Jesus Christ. His greatness was a direct result of his nearness and connection to Jesus Christ. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, and I encourage that you do, we're going to look at three things concerning John the Baptist. Number one, the man. Number two, the message. And number three, the ministry. Now, let me set the scene for you here. Matthew's gospel is really presenting Jesus as king. That's his intention. And in so doing, everything sort of focuses on that reality. In chapter one, Matthew presented Jesus' genealogy, showing us that he comes from the royal line of King David. Then we get into chapter 2, and Matthew presents uh, fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the birth and and the things happening around the birth of Jesus Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, it says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 2, an Old Testament book. The Bible says in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that the Messiah would come out of Egypt. It says that when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that was fulfilled in chapter 2, verse 15, where it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. We see the prophecy, we see the fulfillment. There's a prophecy that there would be great sorrow surrounding the time of Jesus Christ's birth. Jeremiah 31, 15, Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. This was fulfilled in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 2, as Herod sought out to kill all male children uh, under the age of two years old. And finally, that the Messiah would be born in Nazareth, verse 23 of chapter 2 tells us that uh, it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. But then we have one more prophecy given 
And that is really uh, concerning John the Baptist, the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning John the Baptist. The prophet Malachi had said that there would be a messenger that would come to prepare the way of the Messiah of Jesus. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. Malachi 3, verse 1. That messenger is John the Baptist. And so let's look at our first point, the man. Look at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And in those days, and what days is he talking about? Well, there's been 400 years of silence. Prior to that time, there's been just this progression of prophets. There has been, been Moses to Samuel to Malachi, prophets and, and things happening, God moving. But then there's this eerie 400 years of nothing. No, no word from the Lord, no prophets speaking out, then, then seemingly coming out of nowhere, burst on the scene, John the Baptist. But you see, he came at a strategic time in human history where the kingdom of God what was really dying. He stood as a herald to proclaim the coming king. There's a lot we can learn from John's life, his, his philosophy, his ministry. We too stand at a strategic time in history, in our time. The scripture says that the word of God burned in his heart. Jesus said he was his messenger set immediately before his face. Like his predecessor, Elijah, John walked continually in the presence of God. His heart burned for God, John 5, 35 tells us. Do you know the Bible says that there are basically three spiritual temperatures that we can have, but only one is acceptable to God. The first temperature that you can have, you can be ice cold towards God. Jesus said, I would rather you be cold or hot, but not lukewarm. You can be icy cold, which means that you have no spiritual life whatsoever. You're not seeking the Lord. You care less. You have no interest in spiritual things. Or you can be lukewarm. Jesus dislikes that most of all. He says, if you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And, and that's just the King James English way of saying vomit. I hate lukewarmness, Jesus says. I will vomit you out of my mouth. That speaks of the person that's half interested in spiritual things and, and they're just mediocre in their faith. But the third category, or the third spiritual temperature, is to be boiling hot, on, on fire for the Lord. This is who John was. He was excited. He was on fire for the Lord. He's also, if you did not know this, the second cousin of Jesus. We know that John's mother, Elizabeth, and Mary were first cousins. Drop down to verse 4 now for a better description of John. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locust and wild honey. Okay, this guy was rough. I mean, he's got this long, fluffy beard, long growing hair, a camel's hair coat. Now, I don't know if you've ever touched a camel. That's not the softest thing in the world. He's got a leather belt around his waist, eating a, eating a diet that probably none of us would go near. He might even have a locust leg sticking out of his, his mouth. He'll just kind of... Just standing there, you know. Now, you may not know this, but, but, but John the Baptist was also a PK. Now, we know what a PK is, right? It's a pastor's kid. But in those days, a PK was a priest's kid. You know, the, the priest to the priest in the temple. And Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, was one of those priests. Which meant that one day, John would follow in the line of his father and be in that family line to, to represent the priesthood and serve in the temple. But here was a PK gone rogue, okay? God had other plans. God, uh, John rather, could have been there at the temple with all the priestly robes on during the religious things of that day, but John moved outside of tradition. He finds himself 
out in the wilderness eating these wild locusts and honey and being what some people might label him as this, this religious wild man. Now, when I think about John, it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, that says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And think about that in the context of John's ministry here. I mean, I just love how the Lord in this chapter is confounding the wise with the foolish things of the world. You know, the way that John looks, he doesn't fit into the things of the world. And he uses John to bring about this particular message. He uses preaching to do it. He uses a man that, that doesn't look like the religious leaders of, of that day. Now, one of the things that caused John to look like this is that he had taken what is called a Nazarite vow. That's why John looked that way, because a part of that vow meant that, that John would never cut his hair and never cut his beard. So all these pictures that you have of, of John, you know, the Baptist in Sunday school pictures with John with the beard, you know, maybe around here and, and hair maybe to his shoulders, they're a little bit wrong. I mean, never cutting your hair at all, I mean, it's probably down to his kneecaps and, and the beard is probably just as long, you know, something from maybe ZZ Top or something, I don't know those guys, but... John, probably a heavy-set man because he had to endure the wilderness from time to time. He was one of those guys that would be probably the last guy you'd want to confess your sins from. You know, you'd probably want to stay away from him. But look at verse 5. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Why were they being baptized? Because John had a message that was touching their hearts. That brings us to point number two, the message. What was his message? Look at verse two. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called the people to repent, to repent. And the people are responding. Do you know that, that John's, uh, John the Baptist's first message, repent, is exactly the same message that Jesus is going to give in the next chapter? very first message of Jesus is the same first message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I think we all know what that word repent means. It, it means a change, a thorough change, a complete change of heart, a change of mind. But it also includes a change of behavior. Oftentimes, when you see the word repent, it's accompanied with another word, believe. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is one scripture. Repent, re repent and believe. It's two sides of the same coin. To repent means that I'm going to turn away from that sin. To believe means I'm turning to God. It's a complete turning. I just don't deny my flesh. I just don't turn from the sin, from evil things. But I make that complete turn and I turn to Jesus Christ. I turn to the Lord. In fact, I like the Greek word that is used here uh, for repent. It's, it's metanoio. It's, it's really a better word describing the word repent than our English word is. The prefix is meta, and it describes what happens to a person who repents. It's the same word meta that is used in the word metamorphosis, which leads us to the understanding that it's an inward change that is happening, and an outward revelation of the change is yet to be revealed. It's a metamorphosis, an inward change that is occurring. It's the same word that is used, you know, for a caterpillar, you know, in its cocoon and finally breaks through and it's been, it's been changed into this beautiful butterfly. It's a metamorphosis. It's an inward change that is happening with an outward appearance of that change. So when someone says, well, I'm going to repent from my sin, it means that I'm going to change on the inside and sooner or later, somebody on the outside is going to notice that I've changed on the inside. 
It reminds me of the story about a man who dialed a wrong number and got the following recording. I'm not available right now, but I thank you for caring enough to call. I'm making some changes in my life. Please leave a message after the beep. If I do not return your call, you are one of those changes. Ouch. Now I would say by far that that is the greatest evidence for someone actually being born again is the noticeable outward changes that takes place when someone has repented of their old ways and decides to live for Christ. That's what's supposed to be happening in all of our lives. Contrary to what we might think, repentance is something that I don't believe we nearly do enough. We have confession down. We got that down. We know First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from, from all unrighteousness. We also got forgiveness down. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And I think I'd go as far as to say we've got justification down. God justifies us in Jesus Christ. It's just as if I've not sinned. Justified. But when it comes to repentance, so many times as Christians, we associate repentance with the very first time that we came to Christ. This is the beginning of our Christian experience. Yeah, I repented of my sins. Now I'm a Christian. But if that's what we think, then we're missing out. Because unless there's a change of heart and a change of mind taking place on a regular basis, then there's not true repentance that's going on. Repentance is not a one-time deal, and that's certainly not what the Bible teaches. Now, the religion I grew up with confused repentance with penance. Penance were acts that you performed to prove that you really were sincere and sorrowful. To somehow demonstrate to God that you really meant business, you know, yet it had the opposite effect. You know, for sins of lying or, or stealing using bad language, all I had to do was confess my sin and say, three our fathers, you know, four Hail Marys and make a good act of contrition and maybe light a candle and, 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 and you know, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be good to go. And yet even though I said I'm heartily sorry for all my sins, I really wasn't because the proof was I kept doing those sins over and over again. The important thing to see here is that the remedy for sin is not denying sin's presence or explaining it away. It's admitting it. It's admitting it. We are free from sin only when we face it. We disown it by owning up to it. We repent of it. And the first step to repentance is admitting our sins. Listen, God forgives sinners. That's what He does. Proverbs 28, 13 he who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. But the second step is to quit, to make those changes in your life. A Sunday school teacher was once, once asked the class what was meant by the word repentance, and a little boy raised up his hand and said, it's being sorry for your sins. Well, just then a little girl raised her hand and said, well, it's being sorry enough to quit. And that's true. Again, it's a change of mind, a change of heart, but it's a change of action. A metamorphosis has to take place. Now, in the New Testament, it's always it refers to a change from sin to holiness, away from, from, from self and self-focus and movement towards God. It's a, it's a recognition of the horror of sin and the holiness of God. John MacArthur writes this, Repentance involves sorrow for sin, but sorrow that leads to a change of thinking, desire, and conduct of life. Paul would write this in 2 Corinthians 7.10 in the New Living Translation, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. 
There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Listen, when we sin, God requires repentance. And sin will always lead us away from God. Repentance always leads us back to God. So if you're secretly planning the next time you can commit that sin, then you've not really repented. And maybe you go, I I don't have anything to repent from. Then you need to pray and seek God to show you His holiness as you dig into God's Word and suddenly you're going to find yourself, oh man, I don't measure up here. I, I need to repent again. You see, as I continue to allow God to have His perfect way in my life, then every time I see His holiness, I'm in awe of that holiness. And then I stand with the attitude that says, God, change me, change me, Lord. I don't want to be the same way I was. Do that work within my life. And that's why John's message is, repent now, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's his ministry, and that's point number three, the ministry. Again, this is after close to 400 years of silence. Heaven has been silent for 400 years. I mean, he could, John the Baptist could be considered an Old Testament prophet had he not been in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew because he did the same thing, he did the same job the Old Testament prophets had. In fact, he quotes Isaiah uh, 40, uh, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 40. Look at verse 3 now. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. See, this was John's ministry. John was called to get the message out. And John was faithful in getting that message out because that's what God had called him to do. Now you should know that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them quote Isaiah the prophet and John the Baptist fulfilling what Isaiah the prophet wrote in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. In John's Gospel, it says that the representatives from Jerusalem came and, and they asked John the baptizer some question. They said, are you the Christ? And they said, nope. He said, nope, I'm not. They said, well, are you, you know, Elijah? Because the Bible predict Elijah to come. He said, nope, I'm not Elijah either. He said, well, you, that prophet, according to the prediction in Deuteronomy that God would send another prophet like Moses. He says, nope, three strikes are out. Not one of those guys. He said, let me tell you who I am. I'm a voice, a voice of one crying in the desert. Get right with God or make the way, uh, or wait the way of the Lord straight. I like that. He said, I'm a voice. I'm a voice. I like it because especially in John's gospel, John begins by saying, in the beginning, beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. He's the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God and, and, and the Word dwelt among us. Jesus, He's the Word. Me, John says, I'm not the Word. I'm just a voice for the Word, uh, to Jesus, to spread the Word about Jesus. And I think of the TV show, The Voice. You know, all the judges' chairs are turned around and they're listening to that one voice. John was that voice. See, God doesn't need any more saviors. He's got that in His Son. Now He just needs voices, those that will proclaim the Word of the Lord to the point, uh, and point to the Word of God, that is Jesus. John is faithful in his ministry to get the message out because that's the ministry that God called him to do. And listen, as believers, we've been given that same ministry to get the message out. We're to be that voice. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. In fact, when it comes to the, to the New Testament, we are taught that we have all been given this ministry of reconciliation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.18. And now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, 
and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God wants to use us the same way he used John the Baptist. But so many times when it comes to the man and it comes to the message, we walk away from the ministry that God has called us to and getting the message out. That's really an amazing thing that, 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 that God wants to use us in the first place to get his message out, but that's always been his plan. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, God speaking to Moses said this, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrow, so I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And he goes on in, in verse 10, he says, Come now therefore, and I'll send you, speaking to Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. They read that and go, well, wait a second, God. You said you've seen their misery, you've heard their cry, and you're sending help, but you're doing it through a man. You're doing it through Moses. Absolutely. Because God can say the same thing to you and I this morning. I hear the misery of the people in Missouri. I hear the cry of the people who need to know Jesus Christ in Springfield and Ozark and Nixa and Republic and even Buffalo. So I'm sending help their way through you, Chris, in the Calvary Chapel of Springfield. You need to go out. How do we respond? I think it's many times the same way that baby vulture responded on Bugs Bunny, you know. Nope, 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 nope. Not going to do it. Nope, 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 nope. We need that kick out, you know, like the mom does in the cartoon. I mean, isn't that what Moses said? Oh, nope, nope, nope. Lord, you know my mouth. I can't speak very well. And, and excuse after excuse after excuse. God said, Moses, who made your mouth? Come on, get going. Come on now. I think of Isaiah. You know, after he saw the Lord high and lifted up and, and the Lord just changed him and touched him. And in chapter 6, he come to Isaiah the prophet and, 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 and uh, he happened to overhear the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall we send? And then it's at this point in Isaiah's life and it wells up in his heart. And he says, Lord, here I am. Send me. Send me out, Lord. I, I, I can't keep this in anymore. Now, the reason I think this applies so much to us today is two reasons. Number one, I believe that we're looking at an epidemic of a lack of people who are willing to, to simply go out and get the message of the gospel to the lost. I think, you know, sadly, because we live in Springfield where there's, there's a church in every corner, we maybe assume in our mind, well, there must be Christians everywhere and everybody says, hi, you know, it's the Bible Belt. Yeah, it's the Bible Belt. It's all belt to no Bible. You know, and, and so we, we, we have a ministry and it's getting the message of the gospel out. Number two, the reason I think this so much applies to us today is because when the message goes out, many times the message is lacking what is needed. And that is repentance. Sadly, today the message is easy beliefism. There's no message of repentance. Ah, come to our church and we'll, you know, we'll have a good time. And man, it's about family relationships and, and we'll talk about your best life now. We'll talk about having a purpose-driven life. And those things are all good and well of themselves. But where's the talk about sin? Where's the talk about repentance from sin, turning away and living holy lives? Here's the problem. Sin and repentance from sin is not a popular message. People don't want to hear that they need to change, so they will come against those who preach repentance. Oh, you know, they're just so judgmental. And that's what John was experiencing here. It's for that reason John says what he says. Look at verses 7 through 10 now. But when he, now this is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, 
And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, there's a difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in in spirits or the future world. They were kind of the people that only believed in the material world. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, they believed in, in the spiritual world so much that they liked the religion. They liked the power of the church. They, they, they were the folks that loved to march down the street, the street and, and march in the hallways and have people give them the adoration to them for the way they, they behaved, religiously speaking. But John the Baptist sees right through these guys and all the religious garb and calls them a pile of snakes in verse 7. You brood of vipers. I mean, could you imagine this? Can you picture how radical this was? Here they are at the waters of the Jordan. There is John the Baptist with, 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 with his beard and all and, and the multitudes of people surrounding him. And here comes the Pharisees. Here comes the Sadducees all dressed up in their robes and their garbs and, and walking up, you know, and, and what's going on here, John? You know, what, what do you think you're doing here? You know, how come you're not in the temple where you should be? Just kind of this arrogant snide attitude. And John looks them over before they even say a word, he stops baptizing and says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, what are you doing here? John, that's not very seeker friendly. (laughs) John, you're not going to get many people coming out to your baptism to keep that stuff up. Obviously, John didn't care. He had one mission and one mission only, and that was to get the word out, to prepare the way of the Lord. He was not out to please man, he was out to please God. Actually, he did care because he cared enough to tell them the truth. He cared enough to speak exactly to them what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. I think to really get the impact of this, we need to place ourselves in the story. Where would we be? Would we be like John the Baptist preaching repentance? Would we, would we be like one of the multitudes you know, coming in repentance? Worse, though, would I find myself like the religious leaders of that day, thinking, well, I'm just better than everyone else. You know, this attitude of the Pharisees is something we need to be aware of because it can creep into our hearts pretty easily without us realizing, even if you've been a Christian for a while, especially if you've been a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a while. Turn with me in your Bibles over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 18, for a moment so that we might be able to get a clearer picture of, of this danger of this attitude. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. I love the way Luke records this parable. It says that Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. You know anyone like that? They're so confident in their, in their own righteousness that they look down on everybody else. He goes on to verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now I'm sure when he's saying this, there was a Pharisee there listening to all of this. So you've got to love it. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What a blow to our pride when we, when we begin to think, hey, I've got it all together, and God suddenly shows us the true condition of our hearts. See, the problem that this tax collector had is that because of the, the business he was in, he had a difficult time going before God because his business was extortion. He would extort, extort people's money and, and, and that wasn't rightfully his. And he sees himself as he rightfully should see himself as a sinner. May I suggest to us this morning that he sees himself the way all of us should see our own selves as unrighteous sinners. The only righteousness that we possess is that righteous robe that Jesus Christ has clothed every one of us with as believers because of what he did at the cross of Calvary by dying for our sins. How we need to ask the Lord to help us to consider others better than ourselves. Now if we say amen to that, but yet we're still thinking how much better we are than the person sitting next to me, then we've already blown it before we even begin. We have to realize there is none righteous, no, not one, and that we're all sinners saved by God's grace. And that in God's economy, those who are the greatest will be the servant of all and will humble ourselves before God and recognize it's only God's grace and mercy that we are who we are, that I am who I am. Now turn back with me to Matthew chapter 3 and we'll wind this all up. Starting in verse 8, John says something to the Pharisees that we need to do and which I believe we all need to do and it keeps in line with the theme of the chapter. He tells them in verse 8, Therefore bear fruits... Worthy of repentance. Now what is this fruit in our lives that shows repentance is taking place? Well, you don't need to turn there, but, but uh, I think you're already familiar what the spiritual fruit is. Spiritual fruit is described for us in Galatians chapter 5. It's an attitude of love and joy and, and patience and peace and goodness and kindness and, and self-control and faithfulness, gentleness. Now it's interesting to me that when it came to the mind of the religious leaders of that day, John was able to look at the condition of their hearts and say, here's a problem. You call yourself religious. You got all, all the, the right things on the outside, but the actual fruit in your life is not happening. Don't see the love, don't see the joy, don't see the peace, don't see the kindness, the goodness, the self-control. You don't manifest, you're not manifesting those gifts in your life. If you were really repentant, then you, we would be able to see that fruit in your lives. You see, folks, the key to actually examining our own lives as to whether or not you're continuing to repent is whether or not there is spiritual fruit evident in your life. Do people actually see in your life love and joy and peace and kindness and patience and goodness and self-control? If they don't, then you need to pray, Jesus, conform me more and more into your perfect image. And he will do that. He will work out those changes in your life. I think it's really important for us this morning because I think so many of us are looked at from the unsaved world. Those that don't know the Lord, they, they look at us as religious Pharisees because they're not seeing the kinds of fruits of the Spirit that we are, 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 are supposed to come along with keeping with repentance. And we have bad examples of people in churches who name the name of Christ, but their walk doesn't match their talk. And all the world sees is this confident self-righteousness as we look down on other people and say, well, we're better when we're, when we're really no different than, than they are. John says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And he goes on, look again at verse 9. He says, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What John is saying in verses 9 and 10 is just because you're the seed of Abraham, just because you're Jewish, that doesn't automatically give you a right relationship with God. Just because you have a, a birthright and an upbringing with certain values doesn't mean you're walking with God. In the same way, we have people that will say, well, I was raised in a Christian home. I went to Christian school. I, I go to church on Sunday. That's fine. Thank God if you were raised in a Christian home. Thank God if you went to a Christian school. Thank God if you go to church on Sunday. I'm glad of that. But here's the question. Are you bringing forth fruits in keeping with repentance? In other words, there, is there clear evidence in your life that you are indeed a follower of Jesus Christ? Let me put it another way. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? See, I suggest to you that there are a lot of people running around who think they are Christians who are not because they have not really changed, they have not really repented. Let me put it to you plainly. There are people today who say, I'm a Christian, but they're out getting drunk. There's people today who claim to know Christ, yet they're out having sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend. They're unfaithful to their husband or to their wife. There are people today who say, I'm a Christian, and are in the business world and, and are telling lies to people every single day. And they're distorting things and are taking money from people that's not rightfully theirs. They're not living according to what the Bible teaches as a follower of Christ should be living. Now, I'm not saying that as Christians we, 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 we can't sin. I'm not saying that a Christian won't slip up. But I'm saying that if there is a big, there's a big difference between a person who slips up and a person who sins. And, and is sorry, there's a difference between a person who, who, who slips up and sins and is sorry for it and wants to change and a person who lives a continual, habitual sin. Big difference. See, falling into sin doesn't condemn anybody, but staying in that does. It's like the story I heard of a visitor at a fishing dock who asked an old fisherman who was sitting there, if I were to fall into this water, would I drown? It was a strange way of asking how deep the water was, but the fisherman had a good answer. Nah, he said, falling into the water doesn't drown anybody. It's staying under the water that does. And that's true. Falling into sin doesn't condemn anyone, but staying in it does. The Bible says if, if you live that way, you don't know God. If you're lacking fruit in your life, maybe because you're lacking repentance. The ministry of your life, the ministry of, the ministry of my life is to produce fruit. When I mean, you think about fruit, you know, it's sitting on that tree. You know, my, my, uh, I love figs. My in-laws, is, I got to see their fig tree loaded with figs. You know, just awesome. And think about reaching and grabbing hold of one of those and taking, taking about, oh, this tastes great. What do they taste, Christian, out of your life when someone sees you? What are you offering? Is it an accurate representation of the person of Jesus Christ? Do they see Jesus in you? Let's close with this. John says in verses 11 and 12, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. One thing to notice about John the Baptist, he always points to Jesus. He was always pointing to him. Jesus is the one. You ask about who I am, I'm the voice, but he's the word. I'm the messenger, but he's the message. This was always the attitude of John the Baptist. He must increase, I must decrease. John says here in verse 11, there's one coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Now understand, shoes or sandals in that day were no 
pleasant, more pleasant to carry around than your teenager's smelly old converses, you know. There wasn't a certain special order that came from Jesus' sandals. Oh, these are, are, you know, smell great or, you know, something, you know, no. They, he walked in them all day long, you know. Yet John is saying, I'm not fit even to carry Jesus' shoes because John recognizes the holiness of God and he is humble before God. I think that's an attitude that's missing from a lot of pulpits today. But in saying that, I have to ask myself the same thing. Is it missing from my own heart this morning? Especially when you see a reverence and a holiness for God in someone else's life. It's really evident. I have to ask myself, uh, you know, I've I got to take myself to the so-called woodshed and ask the Lord, you know, Lord, show me if I've drifted. Show me, Lord. If I've allowed pride in my life, if I'm not recognizing your holiness, Lord, show me if I moved away from the, the sense of your greatness. Here in verse 11, John says, there's one who will baptize you with the Holy, with Holy Spirit and fire. Now we're going to look at this next week, the, this baptism, but most Bible commentators believe that this speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit there in Acts chapter 2 as tongues of fire rested on the disciples there and, and, and an amazing move of God took place. But there's also a baptism of fire that will come to those who don't know the Lord. Look at verse 12 again. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now this speaks of a farmer who would be winnowing his grain. He would gather the wheat on the threshing floor, then he'd take his, his winnowing fan. A winnowing fan is just a tool that they would use that would toss the wheat into the air. And the chaff, which was lighter, would blow to one side with the breeze, and the wheat, which is heavier, the kernels, would fall to the ground. Then that chaff would all be, be, you know, gathered up and they would burn that chaff. See, John here is talking about the future judgment, the fiery judgment that all unbelievers will face eventually. Now it's fascinating to know that the temple itself was built on a threshing floor. And if that temple is a type of the church, then it leads me to picture us as a wheat being thrown up in the air. And it makes me ask the question, am I the good wheat that is landing on the ground or am I the chaff that is being blown away? Am I in that place of, of being used by God, usefulness, or am I that usefulness place? Am I like the chaff living for myself, or am I bearing fruit worthy of repentance? You see, as we close, it's always good to ask the Lord to examine our, our hearts. To ask the Lord, to, to ask what David asked in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Maybe this morning as a Christian, God, as our heavenly gardener, has revealed to you some area in your life that you need to repent from. To stop the direction you're going, turn around and go towards God. Maybe you've been contemplating an affair. Maybe you've been having impure thoughts. Maybe you started to dabble in pornography. Maybe you've just been not living for Christ the way you once did. Maybe you're taking advantage of people. I'm thinking only of yourself. You need to repent and go to the Lord this morning and tell Him, Maybe you're here this morning and you've never turned to Jesus Christ. You've never turned from your sin. You've never repented of it. you never said, God, forgive me of my sin. That's the first step in coming to Christ because God will forgive you of your sins. And let me tell you, but Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, to admit, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. But he also said in Luke 13, unless you repent, you will perish. Again, it means stopping the direction you're going 
turning and going the other way. You know, you want a metamorphosis to take place in your life. You want to stop living for yourself. You want to live for Jesus Christ. That's the message John was calling people to. The man, the message, the ministry. The ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling man back to God. I want to close with this verse. Acts 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. There's a blessing that comes from repentance. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. If you've not repented of your sins, and I'm telling you, I know you're not being refreshed. You need to be refreshed. You need to give your life to the Lord. And if you've fallen into sin, you need to come back to the Lord this morning and repent of that. And I want to give you guys that opportunity this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this tide this morning. Thank you for your love, your grace. We thank you, thank you for your message of salvation, your message of repentance and to believe in you. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that is yet to surrender their hearts and lives completely to you, Lord. They've not repented of their sins. Maybe they've been in church their whole life, but they've never really come to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. Lord, did you especially touch their heart this morning, that they would see their need for you. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want to repent of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ and be born again today? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. The Lord's looking at your heart, saying, I see your heart, and I see what needs to happen. He's calling you out, maybe this morning, to give your life to Him today, so that times of refreshing may come. Your sin will be forgiven. You can be born again, the promise of eternity in heaven. If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I could pray for you. God, we thank you just for your love and grace. And thank you, Lord, that repentance is not just a one-time thing. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would examine our hearts and show us, Lord, if there's areas in our life that we need to repent from. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to spend a moment in silent prayer of us, between us and the Lord, repenting of anything in our lives that should not be there and, and seeking the Lord so that refreshing may come in our lives. Let's pray. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.